Welcome to the New Hope Sermon of the Week. We hope you are encouraged by this message by Pastor Tom Sturgis. These two weeks were intentionally set aside to build a bridge from the platform to the stage for what will begin here on Thursday night. What begins here on Thursday night is our Easter outreach as we celebrate the message of the resurrection. It's a, a musical production called Behind the Door. Last week, I, I, talked to, I talked to you about that and began to build the bridge. And what I'm praying is that every person, every member of New Hope, I am praying this, won't come one night. You're going to come every night. And you're going to bring somebody different every night. I believe it's going to be perhaps one of the most pointed and uh, straight-in-your-face gospel presentations. But we are praying, our intercessors are praying that this room will be filled with, a, with an undeniable sense of God's presence, even though those who may not be familiar with God's presence wouldn't know it as such, it doesn't make any difference. We've talked about that before. Everybody say John chapter 4. It's a handbook on worship for us, a woman at the well. Something transpires in that encounter with Jesus Christ and this unnamed woman. The word worship is used in that chapter 10 times, and it's the only place where a living Savior, a living God in the flesh, tells us what worship is. And he says, it is worship in spirit and in truth. I believe that whole story lays out for us a powerful picture of worship, where the Holy Spirit was very much present, where God the Father was very much present in that moment. That's another story for another time. But as they were there with that woman at the well, and she came into what was the presence and the Spirit of God, suddenly her heart began to be penetrated with possibilities that didn't make sense to her. They leaped over her psychosocial and cultural connotations. She was a Samaritan, he, uh, he was a Jew, and all that teaching is there that we've talked over. But there are at least five points of clear resistance that suddenly God just leaps right over and this woman rises and said, you must be him. And she goes running away and everything about her life changed. We're praying that those that come in with you may come on the basis of a good friend leaned on me and leveraged me, but they're going to be so penetrated by the presence of the Holy Spirit, it will be irrefutable and irrefusable by them. Would you say amen right there? Last week we looked at a couple of verses of scripture because I, I wanted to tell you where the musical originated. There's 13 or 14 songs. How many in this time? 16. I was wrong. I should know that since I wrote them. But um, there are 16 songs. <clears throat> and um, the opening song, Behind the Door, says, Come behind the door and meet the Christ of glory. See Bartimaeus, Mary Magdalene, hear their story. How they heard the knock upon their hearts imploring come with me, come and see. Last week we looked at Revelation chapter 4 verse 1 because it's sort of the launching pad for this production and it's where it lands squarely. John is on the Isle of Patmos and in the next verse he will say, I was in the spirit, we, I believe, we believe, that's code language for I was worshiping due to John, the gospel chapter 4, which I just mentioned. After these things I behold, don't, no, can't bring it back, thanks Amanda. Uh, after these things I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven and the first voice which I had heard like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me said come up here and I will show you what must take place after these things. We've looked at these two chapters four and five so many times it's an incredible disclosure of this worship scene in the heavenlies. 
You have a throne, God on the throne. You have 24 elders around the throne. You have the seraphim before and even closer to them. And, and then all the heavens join in and worship <clears throat> in a magnificent thing. All of this happened in and by the Spirit of God. And again, that's what we pray will happen here in those four nights. That's what I pray will happen here every Sunday morning, that the Spirit of God will so penetrate our hearts and open up a door between two worlds that we hadn't considered 10 minutes before we walked in here. That's what I pray for every worship expression. I live in an ongoing fascination with the 11 verses of uh, chapter 4 of Revelation. I just, to me, it's where worship just explodes in this beautiful scene. A door is open, and thus the title of the musical behind the door. But what we looked at last week is something I had not seen um, until yesterday, last Sunday morning, very early after I had finished my notes. In Revelation chapter 3, verse 20, only two verses before chapter 4, verse 1. Only two verses. It says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and dine with him and he with me. Now listen to me. Two verses before, he mentions a door being opened in the heavenlies. Jesus is speaking to John, and he says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. A few verses before that, and earlier, in somewhere around chapter, verses 7 and 8, he said, I am he who has the key, and if I open a door, no one can shut it, and if I shut it, no one can open it. And the implication of those verses is he is inviting us into his presence. And he says, you're going to come in and not go out, which says this. Hear me, beloved. He says, I'm holding the door open until you get in. And in that same passage, he speaks about those liars, those voices who would say, you can't know God. Somebody needs to hear this today for the first time, even though it's been taught here probably 25 times. There was a point in your life at some point where you thought, I wanna know God at this, at, at this place, this level of intimacy, this level of experience. I want to know him, I wanna walk with him. I think he's put a dream in my heart to do this and do that. And life, so you think, slammed the door in your face unto that being a reality. I want to speak pointedly, and I don't use this word often as I am right now, prophetically. The word prophetic around here, largely our definition is a point at which God speaks subjectively and pointedly at a particular point in time about a particular matter to a particular person. Today is that particular point in time. I've spoken to you what the matter is and there's somebody here this morning that needs to hear that this morning. That God says, I'm the one who opened the door. Life has convinced you it's been slammed in your face, but I wanna tell you that life lies. I am the one who opens it, and if I do, no one can shut it, and if I shut it, no one can open it. That door has not been closed to you. That is a lie. You've listened to that lie. And in fact, that part ends with, he says, I'm going to invite you to come in, and the only time God talks about closing that door is after you're on, in on the inside. He says, you will, implied, come in. You will not go out. Everyone here, bow your heads quickly. We need to do this, and everyone. I just want to know if you're here today and that has spoken to your heart right here, right now. Just lift your hand. No one else looking but me. Father, I pray for each of these in the name of Jesus. May the force of that word resonate. May it be imprinted on their heart and their soul, their consciousness right now, right now, right now. May they know this is not cliche. 
This is not some emotional religious moment here, but it is the God of the universe who is certainly, as you spoke to John on Patmos, you're speaking to them on April 14th, 2019, that that door is not closed. You're the one who opened it. Life and others may have lied to them about it, but you're calling them to open their eyes and see the open door. It is before them in the name of the living God, so be it. Amen. Amen. You can put your hands down. It doesn't end there. I found it poetically fascinating to find that two verses later, Jesus says, I've asked you to open the door, and it's as if he say it. Now, let me show you how that works. And the poetic intimation is this, that there's a God that knocks on the door to our hearts, and if we open it, he says he'll come in. But two verses later, he says, I want to show you something else, that if you open the door to your heart, I'll open the door to my world, and I will show you something on the inside of my world, a life, a vision for life and purpose and worship that you had never previously considered. Keep your eyes open. Father, I pray in the name of Jesus that Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday night, Sunday morning, that people will come in here that don't know you. They won't understand it. They will not be able to explain it because your word says this happens by the Spirit, that suddenly they would get a glimpse of a door that's open to them, a life, a possibility, faith, hope, a life in Jesus Christ that they had never have, never previously seen or experienced. May that be theirs in the name of the living God. So be it. Can we give God praise for that right now? Hallelujah. This morning, I want to mention to you quickly, sort of part two. In a second, the cast will be coming to sing two resurrection songs to you this morning. The two resurrection songs that... Uh, that just absolutely fly in the face. I'm going to give you a 10-minute primer on, on resurrection this morning. We're going to jump into Scripture. In first century Judaism or Jewish culture, that is around the time of Christ leading up to it, 100 years or even more before, there had been a number of would-be messiahs. Go fact-check that and Google uh, the Maccabians are just one family group, that dynasty that came. You can read about Masada. You can, uh, you can read about all these in instances where there was a would-be Messiah, the rescuer, the one who would redeem Israel and bring them out of geopolitical domination. But they came and they went. What would happen when they came and they went was one of two things. The movement would die, or number two, they would get a different leader. When this Messiah, Jesus Christ, came and said, yeah, I'm him, something absolutely unexplainable transformed a group of followers who were previously cowards, and I'm talking about the disciples. They all ran away. They all ran away. That would have been typical of every other previous would-be Messiah uprising. The closest followers would run away, it would disintegrate, or perhaps they would band together and bind together and try to find another leader. But what had never, ever been said through the hundred-plus years of these uprisings of would-be Jewish Messiahs, rescuers, who were going to bring an army. By the way, if you read Acts chapter 1, you can understand the question that was asked of Jesus. Jesus right at the ascension. He said, is now the time that you're going to return the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus looked at them, and I'm paraphrasing, and said, you have no clue what's going on here. No, that's not what it's about. I came to usher in a kingdom that's far beyond the borders of just Israel. 
for you will go into all the world. You'll go to Judea, Samaria, and way beyond to the uttermost parts of the earth. Then the kingdom will advance and you will be witnesses of my kingdom. But something happens when this would-be Messiah dies. And all the cowards that have run away finally come back. They come back for one reason. Something happened that infused them with a boldness and a courage that suddenly reversed everything we would see about them in the days immediately, around the time in the days immediately following the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. They begin to say, he's risen from the dead. He's resurrected from the dead. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul picks up, and I'm going to share with you just a couple of passages of Scripture. 1 Corinthians 15, it says, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preach to you, which you also receive, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preach to you, unless you believe it in vain. For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to Scripture, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day, and that he appeared to Cephas, that would have been Peter, and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep, and then he appeared to James, and then to the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. For I am the least of the apostles, not fit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. He goes on down in that chapter. Just listen. I'm going to switch translations. Amanda, we can jump over to the translation of the Message Bible. Listen to verses 12. Just listen to what Scripture says. Now let me ask you something profound, yet troubling. If you became believers because you trusted the proclamation that Christ is alive. By the way, he's addressing... a a sect or a faction within the Corinthian church that said, oh yeah, we believe Jesus Christ and we believe he's the son of God. We believe he died, but that whole resurrection thing, that's wasted motion. You see, that's the problematic part. It is not a, it is not a problem to believe that a zealot would die for a cause. That happened time and time again through the hundreds of years prior to the death of Christ and the 2,000 years since. People die for a cause. But the real problematic part is you've got to deal with a resurrection. You have to deal with an empty tomb. And still today, that is a problem. He says, if you became believers because you trusted the proclamation that Christ is alive, risen from the dead, how can you let people say there's no such thing as a resurrection? If there's no resurrection, there's no living Christ. And face it, if there's no resurrection, oh, I've got to stick in a verse here. Hold on. Don't let me forget to stick in Amanda Revelation 1. Not right now. Just hang with me, okay? And face it, if there's no resurrection for Christ, everything we've told you is smoke and mirrors. <laughs> everything you staked your life on is smoke and mirrors. Not only that, but watch his log logic statement. But, that, but we would be guilty of telling a string of barefaced lies about God. All these affidavits we passed on to you, verifying that God raised up Christ, sheer fabrications, if there's no resurrection. If corpses can't be raised, then Christ wasn't, because he was indeed dead. And if Christ weren't raised, 
then all you're doing is wondering about the dark as lost as ever. It's even worse for those who died, hoping in Christ and resurrection, because they're already in their graves. If, we all get, if all we get out of Christ is a little inspiration for a few short years, we're a pretty sorry lot. I love that. But the truth is that Christ has been raised up the first in a long legacy of those who are going to leave the cemeteries. That is coming at the end of the age. There won't be a moment. <clears throat> the, uh, hang with me for just a second. Amanda, it's going to be Revelation 1, 18, I'm pretty sure, 19. It's why... Hallelujah. Heaven's gates of pearl and streets of gold. Loved ones gone ahead or so we're told. A final breath in heaven's door. They're in the presence of the Lord. Oh, the glory they behold. We're hoping to see them again one day. We're hoping that it's not too far away. In the twinkling of an eye, we'll meet them in the sky. That day is drawing near, and it's not far from here. The chorus goes on to say, not far from here, First Thessalonians says, we'll hear a trumpet sound. Not far from here, we'll meet them in the clouds. Who here is looking forward to that day? Whoo, me too. Did you want to know why after all of this going on and on about Jesus coming raised from the dead, blah, 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 he gets to the end of chapter 16 and he says these words, Maranatha would mean, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. You can only say that if you believe there's the consummation of all things when he comes. All right, enough about that. I can't keep going there. Revelation chapter 1, I hope I got the right verse. As I've said to you before, I love it when the Holy Spirit brings the scripture to mind and he forgets where, that, where it is. 17, smart aleck, you had to find the right one. Even I told you 18, right? Okay. This is John speaking, Revelation chapter 1, same guy of the open door. It says, when I saw him, that is, he saw Jesus, I fell at his feet like a dead man, overwhelmed. And he placed his right hand on me, and he, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus begins to speak here. Do not be afraid. He's about to say who this is. Watch the primary identifier and descriptor that he picks up. I am the first and the last and the living one. I was dead, and behold, I'm alive. Can I just offer a little paraphrase? 
I am the living one that came and lived in your presence. Then they killed me. I'm the guy that came and lived, then they killed me. But now I'm living again. And I'm alive forevermore. And they can't ever kill me again. They won't ever do it again. Why? He says, I have the keys of death, hell, and the grave. Through the years, I preached the sermon where Peter says, if he ascended, oh, excuse me, uh, Paul writes, if he ascended, he also descended. Peter says, and he had descended to that place. And it said, and he had a conversation with hell. <laughs> he made a pronouncement. We don't know what it is. I believe it's that pronouncement right there. See, because prior to that, the devil, Satan, the adversary, he had control of death. It was his. And death is more than just dying and your heart stopping. It's a whole animated reality of being forever separated from God. Again, another study. Forgive me for skipping by. But I believe when he descended that he stepped up to the adversary. And this meeting would not be a polite one like it was in the wilderness at the beginning of his ministry. When the, when the adversary came and met him and tempted him. But I believe he stepped up to him. And I believe he said, I'll take those, please. And there was no discussion. There was no bartering. And he returned with the keys of death, hell, and the grave. Beloved, I am praying that the spirit and power of the resurrection would penetrate the hearts of people. Let me read you two more scripture. And then the cast is going to come out here. And they're going to do the two resurrection songs. I want you to hear it. I want you to enter into it. I pray they minister to you. They won't be in costume. And certainly this set won't have drums and a keyboard on it but I wanted you to get to see it. Please listen to two more passages of Scripture, Philippians chapter 3. More than that, Paul writing, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. And I count them but rubbish. I love that word. Now, some you're going to get upset. It's only used one time in the Bible. It means poop. It means poop. Go fact check it. You say, you just wanted the opportunity to say that. No, it means that. It's exactly what it means. So go ahead and fill in the blank with your own interpretation. I have several, okay? <clears throat> I, I won't say here. Uh, and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. I love that. And may be found in him not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering being conformed to his death. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. One more verse of scripture. I don't know. I'm giving you two prompts, so I, I pray that you guys are ready to go. Randy, if you need to come drag this off, you can go ahead and drag it off. I don't need that anymore and get it out of the way. Romans chapter 8, verse 11. But if the spirit of him who raised Christ Jesus from the dead dwells in you, can I just say something? I'm going to reread that. But if the spirit of him who raised Christ Jesus dwells in you, and I want you to stick right in there, and he does, okay? I'm going to read. I'm here, we'll give you a look. But if the spirit of him who raised Christ Jesus dwells in you, raised Christ Jesus from the dead, and you're going to say, and he does, here we go. But if the spirit of him who raised Christ Jesus from the dead dwells in you, Mm. He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you, and he will. Amen. Amen. So then, brethren, we're not under obligation, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For all who are being led by the spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you have not received the spirit of slavery 
leading unto fear again, but you've received the spirit of adoption. Let's skip down to verse 16. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. He testifies with us. I need more time to go in and revisit, as we have here, what testimony is all about. Testimony is the ever-increasing declaration of the empowering story of God at work in me. Please hear me. Last thing I'll say, then they're going to come out. Testimony. When Moses came down off the mountain with the tablets of stone, the word of God, God referred to them as the tablets. These are the tablets of the testimony. They were the word of God. We learn what the word of God is. Listen to me. Please listen to this. The word of God is not really the word of God until it becomes a testimony. Do you understand God's intentions for the word of God is not for you to just get a new memory verse, not for us to come up with creeds for the church. It works for that. The memory verse is good. But the word of God from God's perspective only becomes what he intended to be when it comes off the pages. And as scripture says, it is written on our heart. Second Corinthians 3 says, we begin to enter into a transformed reality. That's the force of testimony of the word of God. And I love where it says here, the resurrection power is a guarantee that the spirit of him who raised Christ from the dead dwells in us, is at work in us, and he is work. He says, when you may not have the strength to testify, let me just finish reading this. He said, I will testify with you. Verse 26, in the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness. For We do not know how to pray as we should. How many are glad that when we don't know what to say or how to pray? Listen to me. There is a Holy Spirit that is at work in us who joins us and says, that's all right. Let me help a brother out. Tom, you may have run out of words. Life may have beaten you down so weary. You may not have the words to say, but that's okay. I will testify with you for you. Is it not more than interesting that this verse attends or precedes one of the most uh, uh, favorite verses we quote? In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weaknesses. For we don't know how we should pray as we should, but can I insert verse 16? But the Holy Spirit is at work testifying with us and through us. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us. He, anybody get that? You got to read verse 16, then verse 26. He's at work, Jeremy. He's in us, and when we've run out of words to say, we don't know what to say. There is a Father still interceding, a God, a Holy Spirit interceding on our behalf. We don't know what with groanings too deep for words, and he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Here it comes, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the statement. See, there's two lists, all things. Everybody say all things. There's two lists of things that follow this verse. Death, starvation, famine, nakedness, peril, sword. Another list that says height, depth, principalities, things present or things to come. <laughs> Nor the angels. Forgive me, but my heart's full of this this morning. Not even the angels can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. 
I've told you this before. I've often wondered what that could possibly mean till I was reading my two favorite chapters. Well, two of them, that's not the, if I have to really be transparent, I have about five or six. Revelation chapter four, the door opens. John sees the throne, the seraphim saying what they were saying, the seraphim, what they were saying 700 years earlier when God popped Isaiah into the other side. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty. But you know what? After chapter four, you never hear him say that again. Nothing. What did Isaiah, listen to me. What did Isaiah say when he saw these angels? I'm a dead man. I'm a man of unclean lips. I'm a dead man. Why? Listen to me. Because these are your administrators of divine justice. We first see them in scripture at the east of Eden. And guess what they were there to do? Listen, listen. They were there to keep mankind away from the tree of life. And there was a reason for that. But more importantly, kept them away from the presence of God. Posted there that if you pass us, you're going to die because now you're sinful. Now death has entered. Read it in Romans 5. Watch how this comes together. John saw these around the throne. They go on to say, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty. Then he sees just out from them the, at the 24 elders who are saying, thou art worthy to receive glory and honor and power. John begins to cry because there's a scroll, a will, a will. That's what the language is. In the hand of the one who sits on the throne, the father. And he begins to weep. He says, there's nobody to open it. And one of the angels comes out and says, what are you crying for? He says, there's nobody who can open it. He says, look again. And he saw, he says, I saw the lamb, the lion of Judah, the lamb of God, bearing the marks of being freshly stained. And he stepped up and he stepped in. Get this, get this. What words didn't come out of his mouth were the words that Isaiah spoke 700 years earlier. Listen to me, listen. He didn't say, woe is me, I'm not able to step to the throne. No, he stepped up boldly. And when he did, he steps in and it says God handed him the scroll. And the, what was God's scroll or book? became the Lamb's book. And something began to be ha happen there at that moment of inclusion. Something happens. From that point forward, you do not hear those seraphim saying anymore, holy, 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 you can't cross here. As a matter of fact, they join in with the next song, chapter 5, verse 9, which says, and they sang a new song, saying, worthy art thou to receive glory and honor and power to the Lamb, for thou hast redeemed men from every tribe and tongue and nation. It says those in the heaven, those under the heaven, all joined in in that song including the seraphim, which it says they did at the end of chapter 5. Read verse 13. What amazes me is from that point on, you never hear them again acting as administrators of divine justice. Why? Revelation, Romans chapter 8, I believe Paul gave us a glimpse. What can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus? Not height, depth principalities or powers, things present or things to come. Not, not even the angels that God posted there to separate us from him at the east of Eden that were hammered on the end of the mercy seat. That mercy seat became a place that was unapproachable only once a year behind a veil. And there, right there on the end, hammered in gold on the end of the mercy seat was a picture of what was taking place in the heavenlies. The seraphim hand is saying, stop right here. You go any further, you're going to die. 
But Paul says, I want to tell you something because of the love of God expressed to his son Christ Jesus, because he died on a cross, because he was resurrected from the dead, that spirit lives in me, and what was once an unapproachable mercy seat behind a veil has now become a throne of grace where you can approach boldly. Why do you think the veil was torn in half on the cross? I believe at that same moment God looked over at the seraphim if Revelation 5 is true, and it is. Listen to me. I would love to make a movie about this someday. I believe God leaned over to the seraphim and said, you've been doing this here for about four or 5,000 years. You're done. The lamb has paid the price and paved the way. Now nothing can separate them from me. Now they can come boldly to the throne of grace where they will receive mercy and grace. Is everybody getting this? You getting this? If there's no resurrection, that didn't happen. That resurrection is the first domino that falls and you go, oh my. I'm praying people get that. Okay, I know that I have retreated to my primary indictment for the first 30 years of ministry and I just led you to a water fountain and then gave you a fire hydrant to drink out of. I get that. I get that. I get that. But I can only pray that the spirit of him who raised Christ from the dead dwells in you. Would you say, and he does? Thank you for joining us for the New Hope Sermon of the Week. For more information about this podcast or other resources, visit newhopeonline.com.